Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters. Earth Matters brings you environment and social justice stories. Today's story was produced in the studios of Radio 2XX Canberra on the lands of Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples for Radio 3CR in Melbourne, Wurundjeri country, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Beck Horridge. I'm talking today to Alicia Demofsky from La Trobe University and Marty Lockett from the University of Melbourne about light in our skies at night and Alan. Alicia, what is Alan? Alan is artificial light at night. So that's all our artificial light sources, either direct lighting and that causes indirect lighting around cities as well. So that's all types of light that are reflected upwards into our night sky and that creates an artificially brighter night sky around urban areas. Why is light a problem and why is there a national discussion around light in our skies emerging in Australia? From an ecological point of view, uh, pretty much all animals on Earth have uh, evolved from ancestors that grew up under a, a very regular and predictable daylight cycle. And only very recently have we uh, had the capacity to light up the night, first with obviously candles and lamps and now with electrical light. And this has disrupted animal life, human life and also wildlife on a a number of levels, but most importantly on a a physiological level, affecting health and things like immunity, and also on a behavioural level. So we see animals and and humans as well responding to light in ways that uh, they've never had to before because it's never been there before. Elisha, can you talk more about the animals? Yes, so most of our animals in Australia, especially our marsupials, have um, evolved to be active at night. So they've evolved to be active when predation risks are lower to them. Um, So that's all our nocturnal species. Although now we've introduced light into their environment, so this affects not only nocturnal species but also diurnal species. So it affects their activity. Some species may be extending their activity time. Um, There's some species of birds that may be waking up earlier and staying awake later while other species and some nocturnal species might actually be delaying their onset. And this leads to behavioural impacts on them, increased predation risks under lighting, uh, impacts on migration, collisions with buildings and other stationary objects. It also delays reproduction in some animals which have relied on light cues to tell them what time of year is best to breed. So that tells them when they should breed based on when there's the most resources available to them. However, with the introduction of light, we're masking these natural cues and providing really misleading signals for our wildlife. And the converse of that is that there's, a, there's quite a few animals out there now that have been found to actively exploit artificial light at night to, in fact, uh, you know, improve their chances of survival. So some of the examples of this include peregrine falcons that have learnt to hunt migrating birds at night by looking up and seeing the white birds against the dark sky, which is something that never would have happened previously. And there's cases of, of water birds feeding around wharves and jetties at night on, on fish that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to, to perceive. Lizards and birds and bats hunting invertebrates uh, that are gathered around streetlights. So it's not all bad news for animals. Um, some animals have, in fact, you know, really, really learned to exploit light. But for other animals, it's been uh, catastrophic, obviously. If, if your whole uh, ecology as an animal relies on avoiding predators by only coming out at night, then if, uh, if humans go around lighting up the environment, then that's bad. And there's also a whole range of less obvious, more insidious potential effects uh, on both humans and other animals of artificial light that come out of the disruption of, of our natural uh, our physiological uh, systems. 
Can we talk about the turtles for a moment? So the problem with turtles, both in Australia and overseas, is that when turtles hatch, they've been entrained to head towards the brighter source of light, which for them previously was the horizon. However, with the introduction of artificial light, they've now started to move inland, so they've undergone extreme disorientation, and they may either have a longer path towards finding the ocean, or they may die on their journey towards the ocean. There's been a wide range of studies, both in Australia and overseas, that have looked into these effects. And overseas have actually started to change the type of lighting they're using on beaches to try and minimise our impacts on the turtles. Is there any move towards this in Australia? I'm not aware of anything being done specifically in relation to turtles, but certainly in relation to wildlife more generally, there's, there's been some work done around uh, coastal lighting, um, changes to coastal lighting to minimise disruption of species like fairy penguins coming ashore, uh, some of the, the mutton birds, shearwaters, which have a, a different but very negative response to light, which is that they tend to just circle bright lights. So venues like sporting fields and that, if they're located near the coast, can really disorient shearwaters that are coming into land of an evening uh, because, of course, they spend all day out at sea and only come in at night so as to avoid predators. But a bit like a, a moth to a flame, they don't seem to be able to to break out of the, the circle of light once they get into it and, the, and they often end up falling down uh, exhausted after you know uh, orbiting for, for hours. So there's, there's definitely a bit of work going on looking at how to minimise those effects through changes to the way we use light and also changes to the sort of light that we put out there. So one of the big changes in recent years uh, in the way humans light up their world is, has been the introduction of light-emitting diodes or LEDs. And as we all know, these are now everywhere from interior and exterior house lighting to street lights to the lights in your phone and, and on your other devices. And the reason they've been so popular is, is that they're extremely cheap to run. They use a lot less electricity and they're very small. So you can put them in places you could never put an incandescent traditional bulb. And um, they're also very long-lived because instead of a single bulb that might blow, you replace that with an array of you know 10 or 20 or 50 small LEDs. And obviously if one of them blows, then you don't lose the whole light. So in a lot of ways, they've really vastly improved humans' ability to use light. The downside of that, there's a couple of downsides to LEDs. One is an unexpected effect, which is that because lighting is now a lot cheaper, instead of just saying, well, let's pocket that money and use it for something else, what we, what we seem to be doing is putting more lights out there. And you now see lights in places where you never, you know, you never really used to see lights. There's, there's now you know, very cheap solar-powered LED lights that you can use to line the path in your garden. You can put lights all over your car. You can put lights on your house. You know, there's, there's really no limit to where you can stick an LED. You're seeing things like the undersides of bars are being lit and things like this, all these kind of places where people never used to put light. And what that means is that, is that light, which is already expanding and covering more and more of the Earth's surface every year just as a result of population increase and human expansion, is probably now expanding faster than it otherwise would have because it's become so much cheaper. And the other perhaps downside of LED lights is that your sort of standard unfiltered LED light has a spectrum which contains a lot of blue light. So if you look at a spectrograph of an LED light, you'll see that it has this nice broad curve of of very useful light for humans, ranging from sort of red through orange, yellow and green. And then at the far end of the spectrum, it has this very large spike of blue light. And the reason that spike of blue light is problematic is because we think it it mimics daylight, which is, as we know, is, is quite blue. And it makes the body think that it's daytime when in fact it's not. And that has a whole range of consequences. 
makes the body think. How does that work? So this evolved when um, we first evolved in the oceans. So life in the oceans was reliant on light and dark. And blue light actually penetrates the deepest into the ocean. So by using this blue light as a cue, the organisms were able to determine when they should be at the surface, which was during the hours of darkness, to reduce any effects of UV and UV damage. And then when there was high levels of blue light, they remained lower in the ocean. So this means that this sensitivity towards blue light has remained consistent through evolution and it exists in all organisms. And that's controlled by a hormone called melatonin. So melatonin is a circadian hormone. In humans, you've probably heard it referred to as the sleep hormone. So it's suppressed by, production is suppressed by light with peak production occurring during the dark phase. And it plays very, it plays a lot of important roles. So it cl- including sleep-wake cycles. It also plays an important role in the immune system, in the antioxidant defense system. It controls seasonal reproduction in some wildlife. So it basically, melatonin controls all these behavioral and physiological processes. So with the introduction of artificial light, we're seeing greater melatonin suppression at night, and that's leading to a range of both ecological and health consequences from every organism, including humans. Including humans? What's happening there? So there's been a wide range of studies in humans. Some studies have suggested a correlation between light at night and shift work, and the incidence of some cancers. So this is a correlation that suggests humans who are exposed to more light at night are showing suppressed immune function, disrupted sleep-wake cycles. And it's also thought it may contribute to a range of other conditions that humans suffer from. So things like diabetes and obesity, it's thought that exposure to excessive artificial light at night may in fact exacerbate some of those conditions, possibly through uh, its effect on the immune system. And are just humans adversely affected? So there hasn't been a great amount of research into uh, what you might call health effects of artificial light at night on, on non-human animals, um, but there is, there is uh, a growing body of evidence that it can affect immune function and reproduction. So colleagues of mine at the University of Melbourne have found, for example, that uh, increased exposure to artificial light is associated with uh, depressed uh, immune function in crickets, And in uh, Drosophila, in flies, it's been found to uh, reduce longevity and also uh, fecundity, reproductive success. So if we're seeing effects, so to speak, at one end of the animal spectrum with humans and at the other end with crickets and flies, it suggests there's probably a lot of other effects on animals in between, both in size and taxonomy, that, that we're not aware of and that will be yet to emerge. I'm starting to feel a bit worried. I know that the light affects me a lot. I really need a dark room to sleep. You know those little dots that shine in the dark uh, from your power box, from your computer, from your phone. I'm wondering if anybody else has to turn them all off before they go to sleep, which is good to reduce power costs. Do you turn off the lights and all the little dots of light before you go to sleep? I certainly do. I make sure all light in my nighttime environment is off before I'm actually able to go to sleep. Now we know why. I thought I was weird and now I'm thinking I'm just natural, normal. Is some light better than others? Yes, there is a difference in the type of lighting and that's particularly related to what we'd call the colour of light. So with these new LEDs that have been installed, they're really white in colour. So it's a very bright white light. However, as we discussed earlier, it's those blue wavelengths which are causing the most impact on humans and wildlife alike. 
So light that falls towards longer wavelengths and typically appears orange to red in colour is actually been shown to reduce some of these impacts. So that's in both mammals. You might be familiar with when you're looking at nocturnal species, we often use red light and that's because it doesn't actually disrupt the behaviour of our nocturnal wildlife. However, it also plays a role in some other species. So should we be changing all our street lights and outdoor lighting to yellow and orange? Probably yes, from an ecological point of view. The only downside to orange light is that it may sometimes disrupt uh, plant function. So you can get some delays or effects on the time of year when plants produce fruit, for example, um, and that does seem to be keyed more towards the, the red end of the spectrum. song was over at the Frankenstein's Place, sung by Gina Riley and Glenn Butcher, who were in the 1992 cast of the Australian Rocky Horror Picture Show. You're with Earth Matters, and I'm with two PhD students who have an interest in artificial light at night. I'm Alicia Domovsky. I'm a PhD student at La Trobe University in Melbourne. I'm working in the Department of Ecology, Environment and Evolution. My research focuses on the effects of artificial light on Australian mammals, and I'm looking at ways we can use lighting differently, in particular changing the colour of light to remove some of these impacts. I'm Marty Lockett. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne in the School of Biosciences. My PhD is looking at the effect of artificial light at night on animal and animal plant communities, uh, including invertebrate communities and uh, food chains between birds and insects. Another downside to the expansion of artificial light at night is its effect on migrating birds. And this is something we haven't seen as much here in Australia, but in North America where a very large part of the annual migration of birds takes place over land and including over cities, they've seen huge rates of mortality amongst migrating birds, which are either crashing into lit buildings or are, or are just trapped by lighting and end up you know, endlessly circling and falling down, uh, exhausted, where they're then obviously uh, vulnerable to predators and so forth. Um, there's been a program for quite a number of years uh, called FLAP that's been operating in, in Canada, and the, the gist of that program is basically they just want big emitters of light, so tall office buildings, uh, public areas, to switch off or at least reduce their lights during the, um, during the migration season in order to reduce the effect on, on migrating birds. And I understand something similar was happening in um, New York with the 9-11 memorial where they had spotlights shining up into the sky. They were having to turn those off at regular intervals 
just to allow the birds to uh, reorient themselves and fly away because otherwise they were just endlessly endlessly circling. And it's something we do see here amongst birds birds generally. I mean, you, you go into the city in the centre of Melbourne and you'll see seagulls at 3am endlessly circling, uh, brightly lit buildings. So what can we do about this and what are people doing about too much light in the city sky at night? So I think the first thing we need to think about both as sort of private citizens and, and as communities is the ways in which we use light and the decisions we make about employing light. So the first question that, that should occur to anyone who's thinking of you know, installing a light or in switching on a light is, do I need it? Do I, do I actually need light? I think a lot of lighting is put on because it's what people do. You have, a, you have a light outside your house that you switch on when you go out because that's what the neighbours do and that's what everyone does. We, you know, we are just so accustomed to living in these brightly illuminated spaces that we, we don't really think much about putting light on. But I think the first thing to do is just really stop and think with any application. And that's, that's from whether if you're building a new house to, you know, do I turn the porch light on tonight? Is, do I really need any light? What is, the, what is the point of this light? Is it doing any good? Or is it just like most of the light in cities shining on empty spaces? So I think, I think the first step is to, is to see where we can reduce light and, and really question our decisions to employ light. So the next step from that is thinking if you do need that light, when do you need it? Can you use timers so that the light is only on when it's useful? So you might have a timer on your porch light so it's on in time for you to arrive home. But once you're safely inside, you can then turn that light off not any use to you and it's as Marty said just lighting up empty space so thinking about if you need light when you need it and how you need it so you might think about the type of light you use so that includes what type of bulb you're using what use you need it for where the light is located one of the big things is reducing the light that's lost to empty space so you can do something that's as simple as shielding lights down to where you need them so this basically acts to spotlight the light where you need it and reduces any upward glare, which is then impacting on the nighttime environment. So much of the light we use, if you think about walking down the street, so much of the light you see is light that is shining on your face or shining on a building or shining on a tree rather than all you want to see is the footpath. We have gotten better at this. I think local councils have become a bit more sensitive to this. There is a, there is a growing movement around the world um, to preserve dark skies and a, and a growing awareness that lighting up cities uh, really limits our access to you know, the night sky and the stars. Yes, I heard Australia now has a special dark sky place in the Warrumbungles National Park and another one coming up in South Australia. One thing that's being seen in other countries that are perhaps a few years ahead of us in terms of the amount of light they suffer from is that people no longer know what stars look like and there's a there's a there's an effect where uh, two-thirds of uh, Americans and similar numbers in Europe, I think it was slightly lower in Europe, literally walk outside it and can't see the Milky Way. There were phone calls to police when the Los Angeles earthquake uh, occurred in uh, the early 90s because people wondered what this scattering of light was in the sky. They'd never seen anything like it before and it was, it was just the stars. But it's we don't think of what we've lost from light. We only seem to think about what we've gained. And the night sky, I think, is a, is a truly magical thing and we're all uh, the better off for being able to experience it. Surely the stars have been a source of inspiration since time began. So as well as, as, well as shielding our lights in order to avoid you know, scatter of light into the night sky and, and removal of our beautiful starscapes, 
The other thing, as we were speaking of earlier, is that it's really important to think about what uh, colour of light you're choosing to put out into the environment. So, and this is from you know your porch light to street lights to the lighting in your bedroom. We've seen recent efforts by electronics manufacturers to create screens that turn a sort of pinky orangey colour of an evening because of this growing awareness that blue light will disrupt uh, the melatonin cycle, which has consequences for sleep and immunity and everything else. But then a lot of us have houses that are brightly lit with you know, quite bright white lights that effectively do the same thing as a bright blue screen. But similarly, a lot of us don't think about the lights we put outside. And you, if you go to you know, uh, your hardware store and you'll see on the shelves a lot of the, a lot of the branded outdoor lighting are these sort of bright blue spotlights that are probably very appropriate for you know, construction work that's occurring at night but probably aren't that great for either human health or wildlife when they're stuck on someone's back porch. So I think it's really important that when we're making those sort of purchasing and installation decisions around light and also about which lights we switch on in the house for which function, that we really focus on the spectrum, the colour of the light that we're putting out there. When people are buying lights or making decisions for a new house or a deck or their garden, where can they get information that will help them to make the right choice? Well, there's an international site run by the International Dark Sky Association. Their website is www.darksky.org. So they have a variety of information on their website, from the impacts on human health and wildlife to some practical guides on how you can change the lighting in your home and things you should look at when you're at the local hardware store looking to purchase your next lights. What can people do to encourage this campaign in Australia? So there's a couple things you can do. First, as we've mentioned, start by looking around your house, but also by looking around your local neighbourhood. So local parks and reserves, schools, universities, workplaces. And if you see a problem, speak up to the authorities and see if you can make a change. What would a problem look like? So a problem could be anything from light where it's not needed, light where there's no one there at night, inappropriate lighting that may be glaring upwards into the sky and not down at the source where you need it. So there's actually been a change in Australia at the moment where we are changing over to new LEDs. This is to replace old technology lighting that's reaching its lifespan. So now is the right time to make a change to push for better installation of lighting throughout Australia. Lights that are shielded with a little cap so the rays of light go down. Lights that are more orange and yellow. The way this manifests itself is you will see when you go to buy globes at the hardware store in the supermarket, you will see a number and it's usually sort of 3,500, 3,000, 2,500 K with a capital K for Kelvin at the end. And all that is is an indication of roughly how blue is the light or how yellow is the light. So your warmer, more human-friendly Lights, uh, more yellow lights, tend to be around 2,500 and anything over about 3,000 will tend to be quite a white blue light. And so preferably for most uses, uh, you're going to want to go for the, the lower Kelvin score, the, the 2,500 or even lower. You know, a big part of the problem with public lighting is, is people want to get as much bang for their buck out of each light as they can and so we tend to install lights that spread the light around rather than limiting it just to exactly where we want it. And I think part of the change will just be the more people are out there asking for a more frugal, sensible use of light, it'll change mindsets in decision makers about what sort of lights get installed. How about the safety thing? Everybody's saying, light up the streets, I'll feel safer. 
There's actually been studies that show that white light doesn't actually make you safer. It actually often breaks up your vision between your eyes trying to use day vision to look in the lit area and night vision to look in the dark area. And that often um, leads you to missing vital information. When people have actually tried to look at things like crime rates in, in well-lit versus poorly lit areas, they've found there's actually no real relationship at all. One of the things that I noticed is that dark sky has chapters all around the world. There is one chapter in rural Victoria. We could do with some more chapters of dark sky in Australia. I certainly agree with you there. So anyone who's interested, you can jump on that Dark Sky website and they've got information about how you can start up a chapter in your local community and start making a difference. Will we see the stars again from our cities? I think we will. I think there's, a, I think there's actually a growing sentiment against uh, needless light and we're now starting to see things like communities from, from Spain to the US taking legal action against their governments, to, uh, their local governments, to remove excessive lighting to reduce the amount of blue light and increase the amount of sort of more ecologically friendly yellow light. I think this is kind of an idea whose time has come and, and people are climbing on the limited light bandwagon. And I'm hoping that in time, every child will grow up in a world where they can walk out into their backyard or onto the street and look up and see the Milky Way. You've been listening to Earth Matters. This edition was produced in the studios of Radio 2XX Canberra on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples for Radio 3CR in Melbourne in Wurundjeri country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. And if you'd like to get in touch with Earth Matters team, you can email us at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page on Earth Matters 3CR Radio or follow us on Twitter at Earth M Radio. If you'd like to listen to or share editions of Earth Matters, you can find this and all the Earth Matters podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. That's all for today's show. Thanks so much for sharing this time with us. The Earth Matters team will be back next week with more environmental and social justice stories. I'm Beck Horridge.